Hello, everyone. This is Food Talk with Danny Nirenberg's executive producer, Rob Perra. At a recent Food Tank live event in Boston, Danny sits down with activist, author, and co-founder of the Small Planet Institute, Francis Moore Lapay. On stage, they discuss the political foundations of hunger and the on-the-ground initiatives changing the narrative. Enjoy the show. because if I hadn't been trained here, I wouldn't know Frankie. And it's been the great sort of honor and pleasure uh, of my life that I am friends with this woman. And she has been a great mentor to me. I'm getting very emotional. (laughs) Um, (laughs) She is one of those people who's very impossible to introduce, but I I will give it a shot. Um, uh, And in so many ways, the, the woman sitting next to me really started the the modern food movement that we see across the country today. Uh, In 1970, she wrote Diet for a Small Planet, a book that highlighted how our food choices impact the environment and communities across the world. Um, Next year is the 50th anniversary of that book. It's also the book that I read as a teenager sitting in my room in Defiance, Missouri, surrounded by corn and soybeans, where I discovered that I wanted to change the world through uh, food. So uh, I'm so grateful to you. Um, uh, Frankie went on to co-found Food First, a nonprofit dedicated to ending the injustices that cause hunger worldwide. She is now the founder of the Small Planet Institute and has written countless books and articles, including Hope's Edge with her daughter, Anna Lapay, also a good friend to Food Tank, um, World Hunger, 10 Myths, and Daring Democracy. I could go on and on and just, you know, recite everything this incredible woman has done, but that would get embarrassing for me, probably for her, and probably for all of you. So I will stop right there. And and, and so uh, thank you again for being here, Frankie. Thank you so much. So I mentioned that next year is the 50th anniversary of Diet for a Small Planet, which is astounding. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. That's amazing. When, when we were talking, you said, you know, that you wrote that book for a lot of different reasons, and it has had different meanings to you and to people like me and to, to lots of us throughout the years. Why, uh, why did you decide to write it, what, and how did it help you sort of orient yourself in the world? Well, I never decided to write it. Let me tell you, I made a D on my first English paper in college. (laughs) So becoming a writer was never an option. But I had the best hunch of my life after working in the war on poverty, going door to door to try to address the roots of the suffering around me. I decided I had to stop and figure it out, how to go deeper to the roots And that hunch was that maybe food would take me. That if I could just understand why there is hunger in the world, that maybe, maybe that would unlock the mysteries of economics and politics, and I would have a direction in my life. And so just 50 years ago, because this is when I was buried in the UC Berkeley Ag Library, asking, why are people hungry? Because Paul Ehrlich's book, The Population Bomb, had just exploded. 
that was really scary. We had these images of, oh my gosh, there's not enough for us. And then a book came out called Famine 1975, right? That was just a few years in the future. And so literally with my dad's slide rule, I don't know if any of you know what that is, but they, they were handy. And I put two and two together pretty much literally. And I said, wait a minute. <laughs> the experts were kind of falling off their pedestals, you know. And wait a minute. There's more than enough for all of us. What are you talking about? Scarcity. Scarcity. Scare was false. There's more than enough food for us all to thrive. So how do we explain this massive hunger that we see around us? And that gave me direction. So that was why that was a great hunch. And I've been trying to figure it out ever since. <laughs> and uh, trying to follow that thread ever since. And I guess where I am now is that the world is heading in two directions at once. One is incredibly destructive and one is incredibly positive. And I'm just, as you all hear, trying to, to elevate that positive track. So I'd like to you know, talk more about that. But it's, it's so dramatic, especially now with climate change. Absolutely. Because then we didn't appreciate the threat of the climate emergency. And so on every level, we are, our food system globally is heading such a dangerous direction. Absolutely. While I just have seen, I've seen the solution to world hunger firsthand now. It exists. <laughs> well, I want to get into that. I mean, you've had this incredible opportunity to travel yeah. the world. You just recently wrote um, an article for your website about agroecology in India. You think agroecology is the solution. Why, why do you think that? Well, it is happening. Agroecology in the particular form of it, agroforestry. Uh, this particular story that changed my life in some ways was um, I was in India about 10 years ago. And I wrote the corniest blog I've ever written called, I Just Saw the Solution to World Hunger. <laughs> I did. I went to near, it was a couple of hours from Hyderabad and met with women, lowest caste elite women, who had, they said, lived in the darkest, darkest reality. They had no power. They were beaten by their husbands. They were always on the edge of starvation from eating just white rice, which we know has virtually no nutrients. And then they came together in their, they started developing a women's group that met weekly. And they said, oh, we can together plant a variety of crops. And they took me out in their field, some of them one acre, with 23 complementary uh, crops growing across every nutrient need from, you know, legumes and grains mm -hmm. to, to um, greens. Mm -hmm. And there was... There is no hunger in this village now, and now it's spread to 75 villages. And they, they save their seeds, and then they go every year in February, and they do a tour of the surrounding areas, teaching people how to save their seeds and transfer away from corporate chemical seed dependency and, and uh, pesticide and fertilizer dependency into totally organic. And they all pledge to each other, and I have this beautiful picture of them with their arms outstretched as they pledge no GMOs, no pesticides, and we share everything we learn. They have their own radio station now where they're spreading this knowledge. And so this was an example to me of what I think of when I mean, you talked about democracy. This is the small d version, and it's working to end hunger. And 
And also, I've been following another powerful story from Africa that just um, is, is extraordinary that please share, that in Niger, which is just south of um, Somalia, just desertified, in, yet in Niger now, uh, 12 and a half million acres of land has been, has been um, transferred from just really um, terrible poverty and very, very low yield crops into agroforestry. And now there are uh, 200 million trees growing. And this, this notion, we, this is really a change of frame from thinking about trees and, and food in competition, competition to seeing that trees and growing food are actually incredibly complementary. And so this is a huge mental shift for me. And uh, really the spread of agroforestry throughout the world, there are several networks now that are pushing this in many parts of the world. So I just want to flag that as one a real absolutely. part of the solution. Absolutely. And, and there, you know, I think people often think that these are isolated examples, but what's going on in India with zero budget natural farming, pesticide-free farming, no artificial fertilizers, one million farmers have transitioned yes. to this system? In, in the state that the women that I was describing, they, they have an eight-year goal now to completely end pesticide use, and they're well on their way to that. Absolutely, yes. and it's thousands and millions yes. of farmers yes. who are taking on these challenges and improving that agroecology can be a solution. One state in India, Sikkim, that is completely now... Andhra Pradesh is now yeah. almost completely yeah. chemical-free. It's, yeah. it's amazing. Um, you, you talked about, uh, you know, this, this myth we have or the misconceptions we have about scarcity and, and production. Yes. And if you're still, you know, if, if you follow any sort of research... Um, uh, in agriculture, all of the investment is really going, as Dari mentioned before, for the sort of that, you know, green revolution style of farming, production, production mm -hmm. at all costs. We're at a nutrition school, and, you know, we're not focused on, on nutrients or nutrient density in, in foods. We're still focused on starchy staple crops. How can we convince policymakers and big corporations to, to focus on what we really need in food, which is nutrients? Yes, well, I think Winona came, I, I so love the way you, you brought us to democracy because as I see the world now is that we are, we've been taught, in some cases very deliberately, and I'm not a conspiratorialist, but to diss government, to diss the public sector, and to believe that only this unfettered market, uh, what I think of as brutal capitalism because it is driven by one rule what brings highest return to existing wealth. And as long as we believe in this magical market that is actually creates such extremes, can you believe this, that today 26 people control as much wealth as half the world's population. Every time I tell this, I have to go back to the number because it keeps getting littler, smaller and smaller. So that, that's a world that, that can't address this. And so... My, my mission in life my, is to integrate democracy into every, every aspect of our common mission here that's such so many beautiful stories told tonight. Uh, and to what I've come to call living democracy, not just democracy as a structure of government, but democracy as a way of life that 
guides our economic just as much as it does our political life. And when I stress the d incredible degree of concentration in the food system that denies us the, you know, that the, the <laughs> I just saw this, that agribusiness spends more money in lobbying than the defense industry does. And so this grip of money in our political system mm -hmm. is di denying us real democracy. And so I think that I couldn't agree more, <laughs> again, that uh, that being uh, a, a small D and large D democracy activist is part of our food work. And that's why I'm delighted that uh, Food and Water Watch is part of Democracy Initiative, which is now an organization, a, um, a coalition of, um, of, I believe, close to 70 organizations that represent about 50 million Americans, all for coming together on every issue, including food, for democracy reform. And I just want to also say that our organization, a Small Planet Institute and uh, Democracy Initiative, very soon will have a website called democracymovement.us. It's not there yet, but democracymovement.us, where any of us who, no matter what our passion in this room, the food challenge, you can go there and find out how to also be part of the democracy movement because I think that's the key. There's this overarching challenge that our food movement can support. And you, you mentioned the women that you met in India and yes. how they've created that small D democracy. How can farmers in the United States learn from that example? What do you suggest for them? Well, that's not my specialty. What comes to mind? Um, well, you, I'll recommend a book. <laughs> my colleague, um, Tim Weiss, has this wonderful book, Eating Tomorrow. He's a, a researcher book. at Small Plans Institute and also a fellow at, at Tufts. So, um, but I think, again, it's about coming together and not thinking that we can do this alone, that our farmers are suffering just as farmers throughout the world. Absolutely. And um, so I think it has to do with coming together in political uh, uh, action um, and um, fighting the kinds of things that we were hearing about, you know, the, the ban on, on uh, factory farms, because this system makes farmers simply contractors, not real decision makers, as they want to be, and as they, that's what drew them into mm -hmm. farming, where they felt they could really make a contribution to the good. So I, I, I wish I could speak more specifically about that, no, but, but, but I think really that is, um, you know, that's really the key part of it, and I think also, Earlier, uh, the Good Food Purchasing Program was mentioned. I wanted to shout out for that again because are you um, th now in eight cities, um, there are agreements with school districts to buy back to something that can improve the lot for opportunities for small Absolutely. farmers because local farm buying from local farmers is part of the Good Food Purchasing Program as well as the environment, as well as justice for food workers as um, well as healthy food for kids. And it's a billion dollars now, a billion dollars in purchasing is going to uh, buy food driven by those values. In just a few years, really, that it's gotten started, I'll give a shout out to my daughter, Anna LePay, who's very much involved in that. Absolutely. So as I look across this room, there are so many young people here, and I met you when I was in my 20s, and I, you know, began to know Anna then. What advice do you, I mean, 
you, you started your career in such a, an amazing way. What advice do you have for the students who are here tonight? Well, it's pretty simple. Follow your questions and ask the question behind the question. We've got to get used to going deeper and deeper, as I felt like all of your, your, your wonderful guests tonight. But don't settle, don't stop asking, because I think that's where we are now. We know our system is not working. Uh, just to go back to the global level, because I think people are not aware, just in the last four or five years, uh, the number of people who are deprived of even the basic calories they need has grown by the size of the population of Canada, 36 million people, even as we have a grain glut. <laughs> We've had plenty of grain, plenty of food in the world. So we, we together, uh, I would say, I know that, that in this room I sense that you all really have deep connections with others, but uh, I think we can go deeper and, and continue to ask the question behind the question. And for me, that has to do with knowing that uh, I can love two children at once. This is the way, Josh, I have two kids, so it helps. <laughs> but I can be uh, in the food movement, and I can embrace the democracy movement. We don't have to make a choice. We can't make a choice. Um, we, we have to, uh, to live in this relational world where everything is connected as... Um, one of my heroes in Germany, the late Hans-Peter Durer said to me, Frankie, in natural systems, there are no parts, there are only participants. And so I think just the more that we can stay in that and make the connections and ask the question behind the question, whatever it is that's driving you in your classes, for example, uh, just go with it and then ask why and why again. At least that's what I've been trying to do for 50 years. <laughs> that's amazing. What a great point to end on. I want to open it up for a few questions right here in the front in the middle. And just a reminder to make sure your questions end with a question mark. <laughs> Hi there. My name is Jessica Brennan. I am a second year in the program for urban planning and food policy here at Friedman. And I am wondering about the economic viability of agroecology mm -hmm. uh, for um, subsistence farmers that are practicing agroecology. As it sounds, was your experience uh, with the women in India? Yeah. Is it possible for this type of feeding yourself and your family and your community, is it possible for it to bring improvements in socioeconomic status? And for agroecology not in the subsistence farmer setting, is it economically possible in our current food system? It is a transformation, it, 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 but yes, it is incredibly economically uh, viable. And the, the women that I met, they, they uh, had all the, um, the <laughs> The dignity, the beauty, the health, the clo I mean, they were, there was no hunger in their village. They said, we have no hunger. And uh, in, in Africa, the example of agroforestry, a form of agroecology, the one, of the, one of the most powerful pieces of this is that uh, by having trees along with your crops, um, this is a protection against times of low rainfall, you have then your, your trees giving you um, uh, products from, from, from them that you can eat or sell, and uh, you have the additional fertilizer from the leaves coming. 
Um, and so there's a lot of economic benefit, and this is the this is the great one of the great advantages of agroecology, as well as I think in India that if you are dependent on the corporate chemical model, that you're spending you know huge amounts to to buy the the, the pesticides and the fertilizers, and so that you save that, um, and you can get higher yields, as they are doing now in, for in these examples that I've been witnessing. And I d another good news piece of this is that Mexico, I don't know if you heard of this, uh, that the new Mexican, uh, the, the government in Mexico is going to be paying farmers, uh, a couple million farmers, $250 a month to move toward agroecology. And uh, it's, it's a very, very important program that, and it, because it recognizes that over time then this will be of economic benefit and of course health benefit to all. Great question, by the way. Thank you for asking that. Thank you. Somebody over here had a question? Right there. Oh. Hi. Uh, a follow-up on the last question is um, I think a key difference between the countries you mentioned, such as India, is that they never fully transitioned away from being an agrarian society where most people are farmers, but in the U.S., the vast majority of people aren't farmers. How many people would have to then become farmers who aren't now, and, uh, and do you think people are willing to do that? Well, that's outside of my world, although I do know, I mean, the last time I looked at that a couple of years ago, that there is a strong desire of young people to Absolutely. enter farming. Absolutely. And the question is the accessibility to land that is so costly. And so I think this is the key part of all of us to figure out ways to make it, that transition possible for young people who want to become farmers. That's, uh, I think, a key Question. Sure, if I could just comment. The yes. National Young Farmers Coalition is working very hard on this because there are so many uh, young farmers who want to go into farming and do it and, you know, using sustainable or agroecological methods, but they don't have access to land. They're burdened by student loan debt. They can't get health care. So the, the uh, coalition that I mentioned is working on legislation that will help uh, these young farmers gain access to land from, from older farmers, get mentorship and business skills, um, you know, help their student loans be forgiven, et cetera. So there, there is a, a real opportunity, I think, for young farmers. And when I was here at Tufts, there were, you know, plenty of, of people who were going into farming who were part of um, our program. So I, I think that continues even, mm -hmm. even a million years later. <laughs> so it's good. It's happening. Other questions right here? Let's wait for the mic. Yeah. We're recording. Um, I'm curious what your take is on um, transforming um, not so much urban but maybe suburban yards and gardens into actual food producing gardens and how that could help and basically how do we, how do, we do things on a really micro level that can have effects on a macro level? Well, now that we know the climate crisis is upon us, I think every piece of earth that we can uh, be growing healthy plants on is a really good thing. Um, I just was looking at a report today that said that if we did all that we could to restore land and 
and plant where there is nothing growing, uh, that we could sequester something close to um, half of all uh, greenhouse gas carbon emissions. I mean, it's huge. I mean, this is the this is the vast potential. But I also believe that we humans, every act that we make that is aligned with what we know is 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 right and good and needed and of value to the larger world. Everyone makes us stronger, more courageous to take the next step. I firmly believe that we cannot believe that the world can change, quote unquote, unless we are changing. So there's a step that one can take and feel, yes, not that I don't have to do other things like create our democracy, <laughs> uh, but I feel more empowered to do the next thing because I've done that, that really right in my own backyard, literally, to help be a part of the solution because I feel like despair is our greatest enemy right now. And one way to fight despair is to know that we are actively part of the solution. And so I, all for all those reasons, uh, I, I, I uh, think that's marvelous. All right, one more question. Sure. Wait for the mic, please. Is there any place that aggregates um, information of politicians who are interested in the kinds of policies you've raised? And is there a way to, it's not about outing them, but it's about having more, them be more present and how to reach them and who's interested in these things? Because we talk about politicians, but there's no face or contact information or ways to mm -hmm. continue the dialogue with them directly. Well, I think this should be one of the goals of our new democracymovement.us hub, that uh, our vision now is that you click on a map of your state and you see exactly what campaigns are underway for system reforms, and you can um, plug in no matter what your main issue is. Uh, but why not include that kind of information as well, that here is the roster of people who are really on board with system reform and, um, you know, encourage them and learn about them and, and hold them up as the model of what is needed. And um, so I think that, that that's a really good idea. Uh, right now, you're right, that there is no place to really locate uh, people on the, the map, so to speak. <laughs> I, I just want to add that Food Policy Action it, it does a little bit mm -hmm. of that work, and they have a, a report card for different legislators on how well or, or not well <laughs> they're doing on a, a lot of food and environmental issues. Right, so we could have on our site different issues and how uh, legislators are lining up. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Frankie. Oh. I think this was a really rich discussion. Thanks so much for listening to Food Talk with Danny Nirenberg. Please rate, review, subscribe, and share the podcast. Make sure to return to foodtank.com every day for original reporting and analysis on the most pressing issues impacting our food system.